The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, the Grand Canyon Heat Stroke Edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the dad of Harper, who is six, and Lyra, who is eight. And I'm Allison Benedict. I am the mom of Harry, who's five, Sam, who's three, and Wally, who's one. We're both editors at Slate, and we're happy to be here. Hi, Allison. Hey. So on today's episode, we're going to talk to Michael Rostin of the New York Times. He solicited advice from readers about how to have a great paternity leave, and then he went off on paternity leave. So he's calling in to give us an update on how it's going and the state of paternity leave today. And then we'll discuss adventure parenting in light of the Rebel Heart Rescue 900 nautical miles off the coast of Mexico. Are parents crazy to put their kids in dangerous situations, no matter how enriching those experiences might be? We'll talk to Slate's own Amanda Hess, who is a one-time adventure kid, about her childhood stuck at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and how she looks back on it now and how she survived. How did she survive? Plus, parenting triumphs and fails, uh, call-in question, um, and recommendations. So if you've got topics you want us to discuss or questions you want to ask, please email us at slate.com, or you can call and leave us a message at any hour of the day at 424 424- 255 rude that number again 424255 rude so let's start with triumphs and fails allison do you want to go sure i have a triumph hey. yeah i know also i have to say that i've learned through recording this podcast that i have a really tough time saying the word triumph i find triumph. it's a difficult word to say and i regret i wish we had gone with wins and fails <laughs> anyway <laughs> i have a triumph uh john was away for a couple of days last week and part of the weekend and I have to admit that every time that happens, which it doesn't happen often, I am very nervous about it, dealing with all three kids. I'll just say it again. I have you know, three kids under five. It seems like a handful to me. I've had my mom come in before. We don't have any family that lives around us. So there's no like specific thing other than like it was easy. It was fine. We had a great time. We even had a friend over. I kind of walked through the park with the three kids and the friend feeling a little bit like super mom. And <laughs> I just, you know, I, I'm now like, I can do this. It felt really good. And then also the secondary triumph is that when he came back on Sunday, I went off on my own and, you know, walked the loop in Prospect Park like 92 times because it was beautiful out and I just needed some time away and I didn't feel guilty about it and I didn't apologize. I mean, John didn't need me to, but I often like, I often do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were two two triumphs those are great triumphs and you were super mom thanks yeah good job so i also have a triumph this is gonna be a very positive Hmm. show um i have a triumph and uh it's an extremely small one but it's one that i'm proud of so uh it's sort of i guess it's sort of i I was sort of mindful parenting remember that conversation yeah Yeah. the other month yeah um so i think i I learned stuff from that actually as much as i was rolling my eyes at it during the segment so uh, on Sunday, uh, we were looking for like what to do with the kids, and the thing, one of the things I ended up doing is that I just took a long walk with Lyra, just me and Lyra. Um, we walked like a mile uh, up to the shopping center for lunch, and then we walked a mile back home. It was a beautiful day. Um, we talked about stuff, and we told each other some jokes, and I tried to explain the concept of deadpan humor to her. Um, she said that her favorite kind of humor was not deadpan humor, but fart jokes. That was her favorite kind of humor. Um, and most sort of most importantly, I think I just didn't fuss at her at all, like about anything. Yeah. Um, I let her get a milkshake at lunch and then I told her not to tell her sister that I let her get a milkshake at lunch. And I have sort of felt extremely absent the last few weeks from my kids' lives. So this was really nice to feel really present. 
So, I mean, I guess the fail is that I have barely seen her talk to her other than that. But let's just focus on the triumph, which is that we had a really nice walk. That sounds really nice. Why? Just briefly, why have you been absent? You've been traveling or? No, I have just been really busy. Okay. Like, you know, not I know we're not supposed to say that we were busy, but honestly, I was busy. Um, and she and she also is really busy. You know, she has a million things going on and practices and homework and whatnot. And so it was nice to have some time where neither of us had anything going on. And yeah. instead, we were just talking to each other about shit. That was nice. All right. So our first topic. Three weeks ago, New York Times social media editor Michael Rostin asked readers for advice on how to make the most out of his paternity leave and also what making the most out of paternity leave even means. Now he's on paternity leave with his infant daughter. And three weeks in, I am really curious how it's going for him. And also, I want to hear what he has to say about the totally bizarre saga of Mets second baseman Daniel Murphy getting yelled at on talk radio for taking three whole days off when his child was born. So Michael has been kind enough to call in from paternity leave to talk to us. Hi, Michael. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks so much. So you said you thought your daughter would be napping right at this exact second. Any luck with that? Uh, yeah, she's usually pretty good about going down in the morning when we expect her to. Um, but I, I think the one thing I've learned from parenting is that babies are always changing. So it's possible that if you had got me on another day, that might not be true. So we should, um, for our, our listeners who have not read your posts on Motherload, um, your baby is now five months old or approaching five months old. Is that correct? Yeah, she's approaching five months. She just uh, crossed the four months uh uh, mark at the end of uh, at the end of, uh, of of March, and she, uh, you know, she's a happy baby most of the time. So uh, that's that's been good for me in terms of uh, paternity leave because she's in that stage where you sort of understand how things are supposed to work for the most part, and if uh, you sort of keep things sort of steady and stable, everything will sort of you know work the way it's supposed to. But it wasn't like that a couple months ago when my uh, when my wife was in charge. Right. Well, I remember I mean, that. Maybe I'm getting lucky. <laughs> yeah, I do think a little bit. Like that four to five month period is a really great period for a baby. And I remember in our family, both with both babies, my wife was like super annoyed to be going back to work at the exact moment that the baby was starting to transform into something that resembled a human being. Yeah, we have that conversation a lot. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I, I, uh, I, I try to, you know, take some humility about, um, you know, the, the work that I'm doing compared to the, the work that she had to do. And the baby was two months old and had to be, you know, fed every three hours. And, uh, you know, the, the pumping of breast milk had to commence at, at other times right. uh, in between. And it's just, just a much uh, much heavier load of work than any, anything I've had to do so far. I'm just curious. I was reading the advice that readers sent in for you, and I'm, I'm curious how if you followed any of it or how's it how it's panned out. And one of the things that people said was that you should step away from technology. Don't check your email so much. Don't tweet. Have you tried to do that? Uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I haven't, I haven't gone radical and, and completely disconnected from the internet. Um, I, I, to a certain extent, I just don't know how you really could be, uh, you know, connected to, to Twitter and other things all the time. Uh, and also, you know, care for a child by yourself. Um, I just don't understand how that would be possible. But you know, maybe some people are better at multitasking than I am. But um, you know, I think that uh, there are other things that I've done to sort of enforce a partition between my parenting life and my work life. Uh, you know, one thing I did was I actually deleted my work email from my phone. So 
it's it sort of really you know discourages you from checking it because logging in is is a you know, there's a little more friction with logging in it takes it takes a little more effort to tune in and see what's going on in the world um so i think i've i found a happy happy medium um you know without uh going completely cold turkey um you know i think on the other hand though there is sort of this whole adrenal process of uh, you know, getting responses to things that you're writing or saying online and so on that you sort of lose to a certain extent. And it takes a little while for your body to sort of work that out. Um, has, the, has, there been, think, has there been one piece of advice, Michael, that you got when you posted that request for advice back in March that you have found yourself really coming back to a lot in these weeks? Yeah, I think, I think the advice that was most important um, was the reader who wrote in and said that you really need to think of... of, of uh, full-time parenting is a 24-hour job and that it's not over the moment that, uh, you know, your your wife or your partner gets home from work. Um, you know, I think that there is sort of this temptation of like, boy, it's been a tough day. It's been a long day. I'm really tired and I'm home and here's the baby. You go take it and I'm going to go sit in the corner and, uh, you know, nur- nurse my wounds from, from, from parenting. And, and you really can't do that because, you know, my wife's had a pretty you know, heavy day at work, and, you know, she definitely wants to spend time with the baby, but there still are a lot of things that need to be done. And, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, finally getting to some of the household chores that were put aside when I was, uh, you know, focusing on Ruby or, or something else. And, and so I think, um, you know, that's, that's, that's really important advice to think of it as a 24-hour job. And, you know, I think the the, the related advice to that was also that, uh, you know, wives and partners need to sort of change the dynamic with their, you know, with, with, with their husbands who are at home and sort of understand that, uh, you know, they, they also need to be allowed to be decision makers and not always, uh, you know, turning to their wife or partner and saying, what do I do next? Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's that those two pieces of advice when thought of together really sort of help, help guide me. I love that advice that was, you know, I think it was a mom who said that to you, that don't, uh, it's it's not a good, she decided with her husband not to say, okay, now I'm going back to work, here's like, here's the outline of how you should handle the baby, now you take over. Here's your with, with my Yeah, with my instructions. Because that, you know, because, and I, and, I, and I have that sort of in me, that instinct in me as well as a mother to think like it's my, even though my husband and I both work full time, it's my role to kind of dictate the broad <laughs> outline of how we handle our children but it's it's really nice if you guys didn't do that and you're you know writing your own forging your own parenting path yeah so far so good um you know I think it's, it's, <laughs> she'll it's, correct it's, 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 it i mean don't worry <laughs> yeah no i mean it's, it's going to be interesting when when neither of us are home full-time and um you know, when when uh you know somebody else is, is looking after ruby um i think that's like another Another course entirely where, you know, we're both sort of trying to figure out, like, well, what's our job when we both are home at night? And, you know, um, you know, hopefully we won't be tripping over each other too much when we arrive in that situation. Right. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I've, I've certainly done some things. Like, I, I think I, 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 take, I take Ruby out more than, than Amanda ever did, um, which is probably because the weather has improved. So I also got you know, that going for me in terms of, uh, you know, the, the brutal winter has started to, to lift. And I also, you know, like I said, I don't have to worry about things like making sure there's a, a sufficient supply of food for the baby. And, um, you know, so, so I mean, there, there definitely are sort of different decisions that you, you make when, uh, you know, you get to be in charge. And it's, it's worked out so far. So we so should I'm... say that the reason you were able to do this is because the New York Times changed its policy 
you know, a couple of months before your baby was born, I think you said, before Ruby yeah, was born? Yeah, they announced the policy change in September, and I think it took, took, took place in October. So, Which so is we got, six we got weeks paid? Yeah, six weeks of, of paid parental leave for all, for all new parents. So that's totally amazing, uh, yeah. obviously. <laughs> um, and I'm super jealous. Like I, so I worked at two, two different jobs when each of my kids were born, and they had nothing in common except for that they each had no paternity leave policy at all. Um, and so I had to like battle with managers for a week or two. And then like, I never heard the end of it afterwards. Um, and have you, so have you heard Michael from a lot of other dads who wish that they had the chance to do what you were doing? Yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty common theme in responses and, you know, with, with, with one dad even writing in and saying that, you know, he was you know back at work the next day. And, uh, you know, his, his boss was even saying things to him like, well, if you want more time off, maybe it just means you don't want a job. And um, I think that's a sort of a, an, an unfortunate, you know, situation a lot of fathers find themselves in where, you know, even if you theoretically have the right to take, you know, 12 weeks of unpaid leave, if you can afford it, um, you know, there's, there's just kind of this situation where a lot of dads feel like in order to continue competing in their workplaces and, and staying on top of the jobs they have, that, uh, you know, they need to be back at work as soon as, 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 as they possibly can. And, I mean, even before this policy change was announced, I was spending a lot of time, you know, I, I had, like, hoarded a week of vacation time, and I was sitting there trying to, you know, do the math to figure out how much time I could actually afford to take off. Take off. Right. You know, the, the sort of father-to-father jealousy that I occasionally encountered at the times was all sort of good-natured. I, I, I'm not getting any of the, you know, response where, you know, you really should be at work doing your job instead of, you know, off hanging out with your kid. I, but, but I think there's a lot of other dads who... Who wish they had had that opportunity, and I, I, I guess I wonder to a certain extent if that could make it that 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 sort of um, you know concern about you know why didn't I get this almost makes it like difficult to build more of a constituency of people who are interested in this because it, it, in, in making paternity leave available to people because I, I wonder if uh, you know once it's passed you by as something that you can't do maybe you're not as interested in helping other dads get something that you didn't get. Right, or you're actively disinterested in giving someone a perk that you didn't, you never got. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I assume you watched the Daniel Murphy situation with interest uh, as it developed last week, which it was super bizarre. But so what did you take away from the response that he his leave created? I mean, whether the response from Boomer and Mike on the radio or the response to them when they when they rejected the notion that he deserved leave. Well, I just think it's so strange that, you know, in order to have a, you know, real conversation about, um, you know, paternity leave that we need a, you know, a a millionaire baseball player, uh, you know, to sort of get that discussion into, you know, into our world, um, you know, I mean, it almost sounds like, you know, you know, it almost sounds like a joke. It's like well, you, you can imagine, like almost like a boyhood fantasy. It's like, well, can I can I raise my child, or do I have to play for the opening day? You know, in <laughs> major leagues of baseball. I mean, it, it just sounds like some you know bizarre world, uh, you know, fantasy that, that that somebody could have of you know tough choices that they have to make in their life. So it, you know, it's almost it's almost like unfortunate that we're you know focusing in that area as opposed to focusing on the average dad who. Um, you know, is is in you know a more middle class or working class situation and doesn't get to make this choice. Um, I don't know. I mean, the Mike Francesa rant was just so you know it sounded like something out of like Mad Men, like right. You know, I mean, you know, we're we're, we're you know dad is like hanging out in the 
uh, you know, the waiting room with, you know, his bottle of scotch, you know, with the other expectant dads. Like, I just, I just can't understand, you know, how anybody would think that, like, they don't have anything to do when they're, um, you know, when their wife is giving birth. You know, there, there, there were so many things to do. And when my wife was giving birth, I mean, in terms of, you know, making sure she had everything she needed and, uh, you know, that interference was being run between like me and visitors and things like that. And I think that really sort of continues in the immediate weeks after, um, you know, uh, your baby is born where a lot of people want to visit. A lot of things your wife needs. Sometimes she just needs a second opinion that you know, comes from her partner as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, her parent or her sister or her good friends or something like that. And so I, I, I just, like, that's, uh, you know, the role that fathers have to play in the immediate aftermath of their child being born. Also, a father so, wants to see the birth of his child. It's not just about supporting your wife, right? Like, you wanted to yeah. be there. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. And so, um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, ideologically, I'm just of the opinion that, like, parents should, you know, you know dads should share parenting as much as possible. And, you know, if you, you want to sort of start off uh, those habits and those practices in the newborn and the infant state, uh, because I think the further, further away it gets, like, the less you're going to understand about, uh, you know, how your child works. Um, you know, you start to see things in the very early stage of the process, and uh, that's, uh, you know, your child being, being raised, and that's, that's really when you sort of make these habits a part of you and what you do on a daily basis. You know, I mean, if you start saying things like, you know, I'll buy diapers, but I won't change them. It's like, well, where's that going to stop? Right. You know, um, were you tempted? Were you tempted last week at all to like from paternity leave, email your mother load editors and be like, well, maybe I could write one post about (laughs) Daniel Murphy. Or did you resist? Uh, I I resisted. I actually I I actually, you know, because I'm not, you know sitting around watching Twitter all day like usual, I, I sort of missed it. I had a, <laughs> I, I, I had a friend who's a, who's a, who's a big Mets fan, um, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of, you know, send me a text message being like, oh, you've got to talk about this. And, uh, you know, I uh, was like, ah, I'm not so sure. You know, maybe maybe I should keep my head out of this one. Um, you know, because I, you know, just, just like, you know, uh, just, just like, you know, just like Murphy is a sort of a special case. I mean, I sort of have a special case with my situation of having the kind of, uh, you know, eternity leave I, I get so um, you know you, you don't want to you know stick your stick your nose in this too much I suppose alright well thank you very much Michael for uh, calling in um, please go back to Ruby um, have a great day I hope you have something exciting planned it's beautiful for today or, or maybe nothing <laughs> we're jealous yes. take a walk yeah <laughs> yes yep. I'm, I'm going to do that soon I think so okay. th- thanks a lot guys I appreciate you having me on the show thanks great. Michael bye alright take care bye bye all right, and listeners, we do we really want to hear from you on this, so please email us at momanddad at slate.com to tell us your paternity leave stories and to give us advice or to give our listeners advice on, on using your paternity leave or even getting it in the first place if that's a fight that you have had in the past. All right, let's go to our call-in question. Remember, if you have a question for us, please give us a call at any hour and leave us a message at 424-255-RUDE. That number again 424-255-RUDE, and we will do our best to answer it. Uh, Our question this week comes from listener Lauren in Seattle. So take it away, Lauren. Hi, Mom and Dad. This is Lauren from Seattle. Not a mom yet to any kids, but looking to get married soon. And I wanted to ask, what do you wish that you had spoken about parenting with your significant other before you guys got married? I just want to make sure that my fiancé and I are on the same page when it comes to parenting and know a lot of things come up. So I just wanted to see 
if you could have a conversation before you were married, before you had kids about parenting and just kind of make sure you're on the same, what would those questions or parenting tips be? Thanks so much. Bye. Okay. I think this is a really great question, but impossible to answer. (laughs) (laughs) Because the things John and I clash over most, which are issues around discipline, uh, and I will say that John had a very big parenting fail this weekend, I, or last week, I believe, by taking away our child's tooth fairy money, the first tooth fairy money he ever got as a punishment, taking it away forever. Uh, anyway, you guys can, <laughs> listeners can think about that and email me if they're outraged. But we, this is what we clash over all the time. <laughs> you I'm sold soft him and out. he's stripped. You yeah. sold him out. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> But I don't think either of us could have known or accurately articulated how we would discipline before we were actually doing it. I think I would have probably said, I won't be that strict. And he would have said, he will be strict. And we would have been right. You know, that would have been the correct predictions. But I don't think we could have made some sort of deal or negotiated or, you know, foreseen how we would really handle specific situations back then. And the only thing we really did talk about in advance was religion. I'm Jewish and he's not, and I wanted to you know, have it worked out ahead of time how we would raise our kids. And doing that has helped, but the truth is that even with that, it's totally this ongoing process to determine what raising them Jewish means. So even having that conversation before we were parents was only somewhat you know, helpful, but not prop- not totally helpful. But I mean, definitely important. I mean, I think that's a, a crucial conversation. Yes, to definitely have if important. That's important to you. So that's what I think. I think if there's anything, either if there's anything that you or your spouse are really out there on, like not within the sort of, I don't know what would be considered the realm of normal. If you're if you're pro spanking, or if I don't, I don't know what another thing could be, like those would be things to talk about. Also, if there's anything that's deal breaking or marriage breaking, for instance, if I wouldn't have been, if I, you know. If the kids had to be raised Jewish and that was that and I wouldn't marry him otherwise or, had, you know, wouldn't have kids or wouldn't stay married to him otherwise, that, you know, certainly that was would have been something it would. That, those are things that are a good idea to discuss in advance. Maybe agree who will be home or won't be home to raise the kids if one of you feel strongly about that a parent should be home or that you're both fine with parents both working. I mean, those are things, I guess, major things. But I don't really think the day to day parenting stuff that causes tension in a marriage can really be predicted or avoided. It's hard. I mean, because it's true that a lot of your parent of what your parenting will be like is totally dependent on what it ends up that the particular circumstances of your lives are at the exact moment that you end up having kids. And you you don't necessarily know. But there but I do think you can talk broadly about parenting philosophies and histories like I think that it was really helpful to me that I knew about Alia before we got married, what her childhood was like, and I liked and admired her parents, and I had a sense of, I I think, probably an a inchoate and unconscious or subconscious sense of what kind of parent I thought she would be, and I think she generally knew the same about me. But here's one piece of advice that I would give, which isn't specifically about initiating a conversation, but instead of initiating a situation, what I would really recommend is to try to spend a lot of time being with parents and kids, specifically kids that you like and parents whose parenting style you admire or would like to emulate in some way. I have really very vivid memories of Ali and I, like before we got married, being really great friends with what with what I we thought of at the time as an older couple. I realize now they were like 30. Um, <laughs> But they had kids. They had three kids, and we would watch them and talk to them and talk to their kids and watch the way that they parented. And it and it really taught both of us a lot simultaneously about what kinds of spouses and parents we wanted to be. And that was 
unbelievably valuable. And I think it took the place maybe of a bunch of conversations that we could have had but did not have. So shout out to Chris and Jack Spencer of Raleigh, North Carolina for for that. Thank you. I think that's actually really great advice. And we do that still today, you know, hanging yeah. out with other families yeah. that I, that I, you know, sort of like the way they deal with their kids, or the way they talk to their kids. I try, then I like go home and try to do that too sometimes. And yeah. also talking more is always better than talking less, right? Yes, that's yeah. absolutely the case. Yes. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for your great question, Lauren. Remember, listeners, if you have any question at all, please give us a call at, at any hour. Leave us a message, 424-255-RUDE. That number again, 424-255-RUDE. You can remember it because that is what I am to my children. This past weekend, Eric and Charlotte Kaufman were sailing on their boat, the Rebel Heart, from Mexico to New Zealand with their two young daughters, ages one and three, when, 900 miles from the coast of Mexico, they made an emergency call to the Coast Guard. One of the children had become very sick, and the Kaufman's boat was having engine problems. This led to a joint rescue effort by the Coast Guard, the National Guard, and the Navy. The story became big news, with many, many people questioning the Kaufman's judgment. Should they, or anyone, take young kids along for such risky adventure travel? And more broadly, what are the risks we as parents are willing to take for the benefits of giving our kids diverse and exciting experiences and instilling a sense of adventure and independence in them? Joining us to talk about the broader question is Slate staff writer Amanda Hess, who grew up with a father who liked to, as she told us, treat her like an adult and take her along on his own adventures. Hey, Amanda. Hello. So you mentioned to the staff of Slate that when you were 12, your dad took you on a 22-mile rim-to-rim hike of the Grand Canyon. That's correct. How was it? Um, <laughs> I I mostly remember the parts that were terrible. Uh, so part of the problem with my dad's adventure streak is that my brother is two and a half years older than me. And so I was sort of taken with them whatever, you know, on whatever they were doing. And I was a girl and I was smaller than them and younger and my legs were shorter <laughs> And so I think my dad was not anticipating how difficult it was for me to hike down into a canyon that's like 100 degrees at the bottom and then climb out of it in a day. Right. Um, So I – and I think he realized that when we were in the bottom and I was sitting by the river and just crying because I was not convinced that I was going to be able to get out of it. Uh, But I did – and then at the end of the um, at the end of the hike, there are these pictures like posted in the Grand Canyon warning you not to overextend yourself, and it's like pictures of people being like put into body bags. Um, and but that didn't happen for us. Uh, although there was a guy who was in the canyon with us who um, we passed him, and he was clearly. Uh, you know, he he was suffering from heat stroke or something like that. And then later we saw a guy, a uh, park ranger, come down on a horse. And it was clear that that guy, something terrible had happened to him. Uh, so nothing terrible happened to me, but I do, you know, distinctly remember feeling as if I might die there and then seeing that other people had. So it wasn't, when you actually did it, it wasn't a feeling of pride. It was like, what the hell did you potentially do to me, Dad? Yeah, uh, but then when it was over, I felt accomplished. Um, you and, were accomplished. <laughs> you were totally accomplished. I'm not sure it was necessary for me to have that accomplishment, but it did. Uh, it's something that I want to do again, uh, and I know that I can do. So. so when you look back on these things that your dad had you do, do you is your overwhelming sense now one of my dad was crazy or one of sort of quirky pride that you had this childhood that allowed you to do these, in retrospect, totally amazing things? Um, 
I think it's both. Uh, I mean, I when I was a kid, especially as a very little kid, I was extremely sensitive and I had, you know, like emotional problems and I would throw a lot of temper tantrums and stuff. And so I was having a hard time just like being in a daycare. And so having my dad bring me uh, and try to teach me how to ski when I was like three so I wouldn't have to be stuck in the daycare was sort of it was similarly scary to me as just having to hang out by myself with, like, a bunch of strange kids. So um, I'm not sure if if he was really... If I actually thought at the time that he was crazy, I think it was sort of a wash for me. Uh, but it did help me learn about my dad a little bit more, who grew up in a very different situation for me. He grew up in a really small town in Wisconsin with, like, five siblings. And his dad died when he was really young. And so he sort of grew up much more independently than kids, I think, in my cohort did uh, once, you know, once he had children. Do you think your dad was trying to foster things in you or he was really just like, was he trying to foster a sense of independence or adventure? Or do you think he really was just like, these are the things that I want to do and I have to take care of this kid at the same time. So I think it was maybe both, but mostly that he, you know, it was a child care solution for him to just take me wherever he was going. Uh, and I think he didn't really think about it that much. Um, I'm not sure that he, he always really calculated how difficult things would be for me to do physically or emotionally. You know, like dealing with a 12-year-old girl crying was always something when I'm not stuck in the Grand Canyon that my mom would deal with, <laughs> you know? So it was, um, I think that was a little bit of a surprise to him, and maybe we both learned a little bit more about each other uh, through it. Uh, but also, you know, when his dad died, uh, all of the older men in his family had died very young from heart attacks. And at that time, when I was a little kid, it seemed plausible that the same thing was going to happen to my dad. And I think he, you know, it both made him want to be a very active person and also, like, do a bunch of stuff that he really wanted to do. And then, you know, cholesterol medication was invented, and it's totally, totally fine. Uh, but at the time, you know, I think there were just a lot of things that he wanted to do and knew that he had kids and had to figure out how to do that. So what do you guys think of this Rebel Heart thing? I mean, you know... We we ran a piece in, in Slate yesterday by a woman who Diane who um, who is a boat parent and her raise, in raising her kids as boat kids, which is basically like you know sailing all over the world with her. She has one daughter, um, and we posted along with the story these amazing, beautiful pictures. And it certainly sounds <laughs> kind of wonderful, and yet. I never would be that kind of parent, both because I don't, I mean, mostly because I don't have that in me. I'm not an adventurous parent, clearly. Like, that's her, those were her passions before she she had kids. But I, you know, I find myself, like, not wanting to judge these rebel heart parents. So I find it totally appealing. Like, I love the idea of taking kids out on these grand adventures, even as I'm totally unable to figure out a way how to fit that into our lives. like, And it's true. Like you, Allison, I'm not a particularly adventuresome parent in everyday life. And we took our kids to Yellowstone last fall, and we like had to bribe them with uh, – with, they really love those keychains that you can get in the Yellowstone gift shop. So we would tell them that if they hiked a mile without complaining, they would each get a keychain. And like that is how we got them on hikes. And we were not doing – complicated hikes we were like hiking like maybe three miles total right but if had um, you had had you been doing this stuff since they were babies and you had had them on your back you know in the backpacks and taking them camping when they're one like the you know do i bet then 
they wouldn't need a bribe. Like, it would just be part yeah. of their life, right? Yes, or maybe they would be like Amanda, would just cry halfway through, and we would just, <laughs> like, fight through it. I don't know. But, like, but I know, you know, we have old friends from when we lived in Hawaii who are raising kids now who know how to do these long sailing trips or who know how to find their way in and out of a forest or how to leap off of a waterfall. And I'm, like, unbelievably jealous of that, of those kids and those lives. And I feel like what I need... And and I may, hope maybe our listeners or Amanda, or you can help me find this. Is I want to find like a stepping stone adventure, something that feels dangerous or scary, and is a little bit dangerous or scary, but that it's highly unlikely we will actually die. I think that's a really funny way to frame it because uh, somebody else wrote that. Like I want to, pr- I want, I don't know where I read this, but someone said like I want my kids to have. Safe risks. I think that was the term she used, which is ludicrous. I mean, this is also right. goes back to the story that Hannah wrote for The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago that we had her on to talk about, which is like, we can't, and I'm not, I'm scolding myself as well because I'm not letting my kids, you know, do these crazy risky things at all. But like, there's no such thing. Like, we re- like there has to be real risk if we want probably the reward. <laughs> right. I want real risk, but not, uh, but, but only a little bit of it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there's there are so many things that we do that are actually risky, like walking across the street or driving. And the thing about these sort of calculated risk adventures is that they seem more dangerous and that can be sort of an interesting experience for kids to have even though they're not more dangerous than other things that that we just tend to do. Right. Sailing on a boat with your family who are experienced sailors 99 days out of 100 is not actually dangerous. It is really dangerous when you're 900 miles off the coast of Mexico and you get sick. But it's also really dangerous to get sick anywhere. Like, so yes, I'm not inclined to judge the, you know, these sailing parents harshly at all. In fact, I sincerely envy them. Um, But that's obviously not applicable to most to the lives of most of our listeners or to us. We are not going to buy boats and quit our jobs and go sailing around the world. But so what is what is like Amanda, do you remember a particular thing that you did with your dad that that you remember now not like the Grand Canyon trip as being like scary uh and actually legitimately dangerous, but that you remember as just being a little bit scary but mostly amazing? Yeah, I mean, uh one time my dad took me in his truck uh and we drove to this remote um cross-country skiing place uh and i was maybe 12 again Mm -hmm. i think uh 11 maybe and uh we skied together for a little bit and then he left me in this remote lodge with like a bunch of other sort of weird people for him to go do his other cross-country skiing things i assume um and i think everyone all of the other adults in that lodge uh thought that that was crazy and were sort of afraid of me and scared about what who my dad was and what he had done. Uh, but I thought it was great to just be able to sort of like hang out in a warm place by myself as a kid. Um, and then my dad came back and then we left. Um, so I love that story. Like I like I do think that kids, my kids certainly are not particularly used to the a circumstance of being alone or being left uh, to their own devices for an extended period of time. I mean, we actually just like started leaving Lyra at home in our actual completely safe house alone for very small periods of time 
like this week. And when we told uh, when I told a bunch of moms at Harper's Daisy Troop meeting that Lyra was home alone while I was dropping Harper off at Daisy's, they looked at me like I was bananas. I've been talking about that a lot with my sister. The, she lives in Tel Aviv, and I think people are a little bit – the culture is a little bit looser about that there. And she's been letting her um, her seven-year-old son – go to the park with a couple of friends. It's not far. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a block or two from their house. But so they have to walk there and then they hang out at the park alone. And there are other, you know, there are adults in the park that prob- some know him and, and she, you know, will walk the dog and kind of take a peek to make sure everything's okay. But but they don't have phones and they're just generally alone. And she's, you know, I think a little bit tormented about it. Like she thinks it's the right thing to do, but she's also nervous at the same time. And I didn't have good feedback for her on whether I thought it was the right or wrong call. But I think, you know, I if it's going okay. <laughs> this is Right actually... now, sailing families are listening to this. Right. <laughs> Wait, a park a block right. from our house? Right. Yeah. That's actually the thing that bothers me about the sailing families, where it's this, it's almost as if going on this extreme adventure that takes such a long time in a contained space with just you and your kid is almost a form of helicopter parenting. It's not, it's like you forcing your kid to hang out with just you for such a long period of time. I'm not sure... In one sense, it, I think it's fostering self-reliance uh, and individuality. But on the other hand, they're, you're sticking your kid so in such close quarters with you. That's true. For such a long time. No, I think, I mean, I think the idea is that then they dock somewhere and they meet all of these interesting people. But you're right. I'm sure it's like it sacrifices a lot of social socialization or certain kind of socialization. Yeah, but I, that is true. But I also think that that on a long trip like that, even if you are in close quarters with your family, you end up having a huge amount of solitary work or thought time. Like I do think that 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 kid on that boat or any kid on any boat on a long trip ends up with a certain amount of responsibilities that are hers and hers alone that she is responsible for handling without anyone else helping her with them and without anyone else even overseeing because the parents are asleep or the parents are extremely busy keeping the boat afloat or whatever. So you're right, Amanda, I think to some extent that it is like an enforced closeness that does resemble in many ways helicopter parenting, but I also think it fosters a great deal more independence in a kid than anything that I'm doing with my kids. All right. I'm really excited for the summer 2014 cruise. Amanda Hess, Dan Coyce, <laughs> Allison Benedict, spouses, five kids on the high seas. What? No. Get it's, ready. It's just your kids and my kids, Allison, on a boat alone <laughs> while you, me, and Amanda have drinks on shore. All right. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks. So those of you listening, you know, please let us know. Um, email us at slate.com. Please suggest a an adventure for me that will scare me but which I should take my kids on anyway. Um, and let us know what you think of uh, parents on boats. All right. Let's move on to recommendations. Allison, you got a good one? Uh, I have a good one, but it's not a – you said that in such an upbeat voice and it's actually kind of depressing. But I think it's a good thing for parents to read. So – it's a piece in the May issue of Cosmo magazine. You wouldn't necessarily expect a serious long-form piece, but it is by Abigail Pesta called Who Are You Calling a Bully? And it's the most detailed reporting yet I've read on the Rebecca Sedwick bullying case. Do you know about this, Dan? Uh, tell me more. Rebecca was 12 when she committed suicide. She she walked to an abandoned cement plant and climbed one of the silos and jumped. And two girls at her school were eventually arrested in the case, charged with I think it was stalking. It was essentially charged with bullying, which prosecutors said they believe contributed to uh, Rebecca's death. 
they were eventually let off from lack of evidence, but the Cosmo story is really a detailed account of one of those girls, Caitlin Roman's side of things. I, I shouldn't even say side because she's not combative at all. She's clearly tortured about what happened. <laughs> but the writer, uh, uh, Pest, uh, Abigail Pesta, takes us through what are essentially, I think, normal interactions between middle school girls. And by normal, I mean brutal. Like It's really hard to read about how these girls treated each other. Um, but it seems to me important for parents, especially parents of girls, to make themselves read it. So I'm recommending it. I also think, like, I bet I imagine that it also seemed like very familiar, like not that removed from the way that people treated each other when you were 12. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the cyberbullying stuff is kind of horrible, but that wasn't the stuff that got me in the gut as I was reading it. Um, it was the stuff about, like, you know, one girl turning all the other girls against Rebecca, about right. a confrontation in the hallway, about girls, you know, sort of saying fight, 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 and them actually getting in a physical fight. I totally remember that, like, in the parking lot after school. I, I'm of the mind, which uh, I'm not the only one, that I don't think bullying is necessarily a bigger problem now than it used to be. But it's and, – and I think the reaction to it has gone overboard, and I certainly don't think these girls should have been arrested at all. <laughs> but – um, just just reading about these experiences, it it you know it's a punch to the gut. Yeah, um, I am also recommending something to read this time, um, not for kids but for adults. Uh, it is a blog post um, called "A Better Way to Say Sorry." It's on a parenting and education blog called Cup of Cocoa, and it's written by a woman named Joellen. Uh, so my friend Nicole posted this on Facebook this weekend, and I was like, you know what, I. I will read this because my kids need a better way to say sorry because they are always, you know, when we're like, apologize to your sister, they're always like, sorry. And it's so not convincing. You're like, say but, it nicely. Right, say it nicely. <laughs> and then it's so convincing because then they go, sorry. Oh, that was great. That was a great apology. You sh- you've showed remorse. Um, so this woman, Joellen, is a former elementary school teacher, I believe. Um, and she explains about this four-step process that she got the kids in her class to use every time that they were were asked to apologize for something. And the four steps were, I'm sorry for, this is wrong because, in the future I will, and then asking, will you forgive me? And it seems like overkill, and it is sort of intentionally overkill, but it is also kind of great because it focuses on apology and it essentially forces you in a way to actually be sincere because it doesn't allow you to not think about the actual hurt that you caused another person and it doesn't allow you to not think about what you can do better. It forces you to do both those things. I've been trying to use it at home. I'm working on it with my kids, like like some sort of modified informal version of this process to make those apologies a little bit longer and more detailed and ask my children to think sort of more uh, positively about the ways that they will change their behavior in the future. And I also use this method myself this weekend to apologize to Allison for a super dick move that I pulled at work. And it totally worked. You forgave me. I did forgive you. It was the greatest. So um, I recommend it. We'll put the uh, the link to um, this post on um, on the uh, on the article page for this uh, for this podcast on Slate, but it's called "A Better Way to Say Sorry" on a parenting and education blog called Cup of Cocoa C U P P A C O C O A. So look for it; it's really good. That's our show. Um, thanks for listening. You know, if you listen and you're not a subscriber yet, please subscribe on iTunes to just search for Mom and Dad in the Slate in the iTunes Store and subscribe to this podcast. 
Um, you can also subscribe to Slate's general podcast feed. You'll get us that way. Um, if you like us, please leave a comment on iTunes. That helps other people find the show. Um, and you can email us. Please email us at momandad at slate.com to suggest topics or recommend books or guests or just say hi. Uh, our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>